0: Morning, everybody. I was thinking during our worship time where we left off last Sunday, I don't know how many of you hung around to see the 100 or so students who were just kind of packed around the front and they were chanting at the end of the service, you know, one more song and one more song and they wouldn't let the worship team, you know, they're like, just keep going and keep going. And I thought, what, a, what an amazing image. I just thought about, I'm sure this is happening all around the country in different places. I just don't know how many settings I've been in where I saw 100 plus students screaming for something to continue that was in the stream of corporate worship and just saying one more song, one more. They just wanted to keep worshiping and keep exalting. And how encouraging. I'm just so grateful to be a part of a body of people that invests so deeply in the next generation. Are you grateful for that? I'm really, really grateful for that. And uh, and I just thought about all of you as adults who've poured out to make those experiences possible. You know, it takes a lot of energy and effort to build into the next generation. And if you're a parent, you know all about that. But just extrapolate out parenting across 100 plus and with what our young people are facing today. And so students, we're glad that these summer months you're here with us and hanging out together as we look at the life of Joseph, because you know Joseph got his start around the age of this kind of Ignite crowd that was gathered around the stage. Remember, he was 17. He was 17 when God gave him a glimpse of what his future was gonna be like. And I think God gave a lot of glimpses at Ignite camp, even some of our younger, right? Seventh, eighth, ninth graders, all the way up through high school, there were some glimpses. And if you haven't had a conversation with some of the students who've gone to Ignite, Parents, let me encourage you to, to do that. Ask them, say, hey, what did God speak to you about? You know, talk to me about that. Just get some, get some dialogue going because there were some glimpses given about some things God wants them to do with their lives. And we wanna be the kind of body who gets behind that and cheers that on and celebrates that. But we shouldn't be surprised then, like Joseph's storyline, he, that he was raised in brokenness. You know, every blue chair has a story. We all come from some measure of brokenness because of the world we live in. And even the best of parents are broken parents. Amen on that, right? Even the best of grandparents are broken grandparents. And so we're all raised in brokenness at some level where you know Joseph was raised in brokenness. His level of dysfunction would be quite high on the scale. His dad struggled with integrity, had four different uh, wives slash mistresses, and he had 11 brothers, and there were across all those four ladies, and there was a lot of discord and anger and jealousy within their home to the point where Joseph's introduced to us and his 11 brothers are trying to figure out how to get rid of him. Because he was the favored son and he had the nice flowing robe and it was colorful. And so they wanted to figure out a way to get rid of him. So they took his robe and slaughtered an animal and dipped the robe in some blood and then tossed Joseph down into a cistern. So he went from being raised in brokenness to being left alone in darkness. He was thrown down at the bottom of a cistern. The brothers concocted a story to take back to dad. Hey, Joseph's gone. He's dead. Here's his robes. He has blood. And in the meantime, he sold off to some Midianite merchants who come by and they pick him, throw him on a wagon ride headed to who knows where. He's headed to Potiphar's house, who's an Egyptian military official. And if you're an Egyptian military official and you see a young Hebrew man enter your household, there's only one assignment you have, and that's to be a slave of that household. And so he goes from being tossed in a sister and on a wagon ride, and then he's placed in this household, becoming a servant for several years and then he's on the receiving end of what we would call today sexual harassment. Before that term was even given, uh, there wasn't a sexual harassment suit that Joseph could file at that point. He was just on the receiving end of Mrs. Potiphar's advances. He hand, Joseph handles it with great integrity, resists, runs, flees. Mrs. Potiphar's ego is so bruised. She's so hurt because of the denial or whatever. She concocts her own story towards Mr. Potiphar and says, hey, Joseph come on to me. Actually, it was she came on to him, but she reverses the tide. And then Joseph ends up on the receiving end of Mr. Potiphar's anger. He's tossed in prison and left alone there. So he's forgotten in obscurity. So he goes from being raised in brokenness to being left alone in darkness to being forgotten in obscurity. All back to God gave him a glimpse at age 17. The glimpse was what? He's got great plans, right? We quote Jeremiah 29, 11. Many of you have that on the walls of your home. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, give you a hope and a future. And some of you are living out, uh, Lord, I just need some clearer picture of the hope and the future because the current realities are brokenness or aloneness or darkness or, you know, Joseph 17 when he's given the glimpse and then what followed the glimpse? Joseph thought it would be glimpse, Breakthrough. That's what we love, right? We love it when God does that. When you take it from glimpse, this is what I want you to do. He's gonna be a leader. Lots of people are gonna be following him. People are gonna be bowing down to him. Joseph at 17 thinks glimpse, breakthrough. But God's plan was glimpse, descent, breakthrough. That's much more how God operates, by the way, when you look at all the characters in here. It's much more glimpse descent breakthrough, descent being cistern and wagon ride and potiphar's house. And then he's sold or then he's left at Potiphar's house and then put in prison and then he's got a little deal with the prison because all along the way, what do we read about Joseph? The Lord is with him which ought to be an encouragement to us. If some of you in the middle of cistern, wagon ride headed to who knows where, sold off here, glimpsed, you're in the middle of your own personal descent or descending seasons, what did it kept saying about the Lord with Joseph? The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him, giving favor, giving blessing in the darkness, in the wagon ride, in the prison, to the point where, He has a couple of prison inmates who they kind of come up with a deal because they understand Joseph. He's kind of got this in with God so that he can interpret dreams. And so Joseph interprets their dreams and Joseph says to the butler, the chief cupbearer, hey, when you get out, because you're gonna get out in three days, that's what your dream was about. When you get out, could you just put in a good word to Pharaoh for me? Because I'm really in here and it's not really a just sentence. I'm in here because Mrs. Potiphar's ego's bruised and... Would you just kind of help me out? You know, it was a fair ask, I think. And so the chief, I'm sure the butler's like, yeah, yeah, I'll take care of you, I'll take care of you. I'm out in three days. He gets out in three days, just like Joseph said. And then we left him off in the story where, how long did the butler forget him? Two years. Not two weeks, not two months, two years. Glimpse, descent, breakthrough. You see, Joseph's plan, my plan, often our plan is glimpse, b- breakthrough. Joseph's plan was 17 years old, I'm ready to roll. God's plan, Joseph, you're ready at 30. He's 30 years old in this chapter we're in today, 41. So there's a 13-year difference of opinion from God's plan versus Joseph's plan. Anybody else experience that with God? There's often I have in my relationship with the Lord a 13-year difference of opinion. And that's for Joseph. He's like, hey, I'm ready for a glimpse breakthrough. And God's like, hey, you're not ready. I know you think you're ready. We got some other things we got to work on. And what have we been seeing all through this series is God's at work on the beams of his interior world, strengthening, thickening those beams to uphold the weight of responsibility and authority that's about to be entrusted to him. God knows breakthroughs going to come. When breakthrough comes, he wants to make sure Joseph is going to handle it like God wants it handled. Joseph's like, I'm ready to roll at 17. God's like, no, you're not ready to roll at 17. You're ready to roll at 30. And in between there, there's this descending season because stuff happens in the descent that would never happen in the ascent. There's some things built in our lives in the cisterns and in the prison cells and the aloneness of the darkness that would never happen in just pure breakthrough seasons of life. And so what happens here is we left Joseph off about to cross over from uh, descent into breakthrough. He's just stepping out of the two-year prison sentence. And how did that happen? Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh, the, think of him as the president of Egypt. So the president of Egypt has a dream. He has a couple of dreams, actually. And he calls in all the wise men and enchanters, the dream interpreters. That was a big deal back then. If someone could interpret dreams, you had like an in on like spiritual knowledge and things. So they would always call in their wise men and enchanters. And they, and, Joseph, and Joseph had a reputation now. And all of a sudden, the butler, ding, ding, ding. Pharaoh, he has a dream. He has a couple of dreams. No one can interpret it. He's running around asking for help on interpreting it. He's like, I remember now. Two years later. (laughs) Seriously? Two years later. Joseph, you know, he's just left in the prison, just forgotten. So here is the scene, verse eight, chapter 41. We're gonna make three observations from his initial step into the breakthrough season. In the morning... Pharaoh's mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dream, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Boy, that's an understatement. Anybody else felt like that? Anybody else had one of those like two-year issue going on and all of a sudden, ding, 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 light comes on. It's like, that's been a two-year deal. That's a problem. I'm reminded of my shortcomings today. The Holy Spirit's really good at that. I found he's really good at reminding me of shortcomings through my spouse, (laughs) through my children, through my close friends, the people who have to spend the most time with me. They have a spiritual gift of reminding me of my shortcomings. Anybody else found this? God loves to do that with us. You know, he's got this idea with all of our lives. He's like, I really want the character of Christ built in these human beings. He's like, I got a great idea. I'm going to create a family unit. I'm going to throw them all into a family unit in brokenness and the mess of a family unit. And boy, right in there, selflessness and sacrifice and servanthood and all that stuff's going to get forged out of you in the If you're gonna have any form of a healthy family, you can have all kinds of unhealthy family units and be selfish and egotistical and all that, but if you're gonna try to have a healthy marriage, a good marriage, if you're gonna try to be a good parent, what's it gonna require of you? I've often said that the two things in my life that have driven a dagger in the heart of self more than anything else is getting married and having kids. Are you kidding me? It's like a daily, it's a gift from God to say, you gotta go beyond yourself, you gotta look beyond yourself, outside of yourself, give yourself away for the sake of others. And here's, right here, chief cupbearer's like, oh, I have some shortcomings. I forgot my friend in jail for two years. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position and the other man was hanged, right? Remember, the baker, the butler got his great interpretation. Three days, you're out, back to your job, serving Pharaoh. Uh, Baker, not so good. Three days, you're gonna be hung. Birds are gonna be pecking at your flesh. Mm. Nightmare. We rewind that and have you not interpret that dream for me kind of thing. Sure enough, that's what happens. Baker's dead, butler's out. And notice how the butler just recounts it in such great detail. (laughs) Which means after two years, can you just picture it? The memory's just rolling back in. That's right, he did that, he said that, I got out, I forgot him. Ah, let's try to make up for that. Verse 14, so Pharaoh sent for Joseph and he was quickly brought from the dungeon when he had shaved (laughs) and changed his clothes. I love that, I love the Bible. There's no book like this. Are you kidding me? Why else would you put things in there like he became aware of his shortcomings and he shaved and changed his clothes? Why is that important? Because he was a scraggly mess after two years in the dungeon. Big old beer there, nasty smelling, probably got all kinds of mites rolling out of it. It's like you can't roll into Pharaoh's, like you can't go into his office looking like that. Clean up. You stink like, ah, let's clean you up. Because you're going to go in there and interpret one of his dreams. See, stepping from descent into breakthrough. Descent into breakthrough. So I want you to think three observations here. First one in this sequence of the story is there's a trusting element as we step out of descent into breakthrough. And the trusting is in the waiting seasons, no matter how long and confusing. We've gotta learn, there's something in here where Joseph's getting a PhD in trusting God in the waiting seasons, no matter how long and confusing they became. Because there's something in the human heart that wants to accelerate the march of destiny. Have you noticed that? I'll speak for me from here. There's something in my heart that wants to accelerate the march of destiny. There's something within me that I don't have to work hard at getting ahead of God on things, of wanting to move things along, of like taking things into my own hands and trying to do it in my own strength and... Get this moving, Lord, is this a little too slow? There's something in our heart, there's something in the human condition that wants to accelerate the march of destiny. Do you know how God chisels that out of our heart? He invites us into the waiting room. Do you know that accelerating the march of destiny doesn't get chiseled out of us when we go glimpse breakthrough? When you go glimpse breakthrough, you know what happens right there? You're you're not getting a real healthy dose of patience and waiting on the Lord. Because why? Because you're given a glimpse of what God wants you to do. You step into it, everything's going great, and you're rolling on. Fair amount of impatience will get built there, and you'll tend to get ahead of God in things. You want to accelerate things. God's like, I need to deal with this in Joseph. I need to deal with this in each of us. So you know what he does is he brings us in to these places called waiting and then he elongates the waiting. Have you noticed this with him? He's really good at elongating the waiting. So our definition of waiting we've got in our head, okay, well Lord, we're going to wait on you for this. Maybe a week, maybe a two, a month, oh Lord, a month. I love hanging out with teenagers too cuz like their time scale, right? I just love it. Like summertime's the best, right? There's think oh, summer's just so long and so great. And we all know as parents, like, you know, eight to 10 weeks, it's like, right? But, but it's just, we're skewed. And then as adults, we're not that much better. Right? We're gonna wait on the Lord. We're gonna pray and wait for a whole month on this. And God's like, you know what? I just, I gotta get this chiseled out. I gotta get this chiseled out of Simpson. We gotta get a different paradigm for waiting, different paradigm for waiting. So I'll elongate the waiting, and when you hang out in the waiting room, what gets sifted in there? Trust. I don't understand why we're waiting, Lord. I don't know exactly what we're waiting for. I'm ready to get moving. Accelerate this march. Let's get going. Because remember, Joseph knew where he was going. He's gonna be in a big leadership role. Get moving. Gotta wait. 13 year difference of opinion for him. Not always 13 years for us, but often I found way longer than I prefer. God's time frame is much different than mine and often I'm on the receiving end of thinking he's way slower than I prefer him to be. And what's in all that? It's this. That's why the scriptures are filled with these lines. I put some in your notes there. Why are the why is the Bible filled with words like Psalm 27:14? Wait for the Lord, be strong, take heart and wait for the Lord. Or, how about Psalm 130, verse 5? I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. Or, how about Isaiah 40, 31? We love to quote this Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. We like the last part of that verse. We definitely want to be renewed in strength, but God says we've got to wait on the Lord. You don't find a whole lot of scriptures that say, hurry up and get moving, you're falling behind. There are a few instances where God moved suddenly and the people were dragging their feet, very few. Vast majority are in this camp. Be strong, take heart, wait for the Lord. Deal with this march of destiny that you wanna accelerate. You gotta get that in check. And how you're gonna get that in check is usually in descending seasons, usually in the waiting room. So when you get into breakthrough seasons, you're gonna steward this authority and responsibility How? I think Joseph is gonna be a really patient leader with what he's entrusted with. You're like, well, I hope so after all that he's been through to this point, but how about with us? Can you see? Can you look back at your own journey now? Just kind of look, think back, say, how is God shaping and forming this in me that when you get to those places, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in ministry, whether it's in your household, that you're leading and ruling in a way that you are waiting on the Lord, that you're not getting ahead of him. And I found my tendency is much more often to get ahead of him than to lag behind him. And so he invites us into the waiting room to kind of get that worked out of our heart. So now let's see verse 15, what happens with Pharaoh and Joseph's dialogue. Pharaoh says to Joseph, I had a dream. No one could interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Check this out, verse 16. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God, there's a key line down there, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. What stands out to you right there? If you're Joseph, and we just went through where he's been in his 13-year journey, and you're just now gotten shaved up, cleaned up, smelling good, looking good. You're standing in the king's court. All the people in front of you got all the power and authority to turn your life around. If there was ever a time you're gonna turn the spotlight where? On yourself, it would be right here, right? You're thinking, man, that's right, I can do that. And how about we, let's negotiate. Pharaoh, how about, you know, one dream for freedom, like, He's out of the dungeon. Can we make that? None of that. What does he do? He keeps the spotlight directed squarely on God. Do you want to see the fruit of the descent? Here's a window into the interior world and the beams that have been developed in him. When he's thrust into this position, he's now what? Keeping the spotlight where it needs to be kept. So that's why I put the second observation from this chapter is when breakthrough comes We don't let self take an elevated seat. I want you to see this all through this section. Verse 25, look how it says, God has revealed to Pharaoh, is what Joseph's saying, what he is about to do. Verse 28, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 32, the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. It's God, 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 all through there. In an opportunity where he could have grabbed some of the spotlight, leveraged it for a kind of a self-centered, personal gain, he keeps the spotlight directed towards God make makes sure Pharaoh understands clearly it's God who's going to come through for him. He's just a means to an end. Joseph's just serving. I think that's the fruit of some 13 years of descent. I'm not sure he would have done that at 17. Just saying, based upon right, he's bragging about the dream in front of his family. I'm not sure how you would have handled Pharaoh's Pharaoh's court at 17. But at 30, after the wagon ride and the jail cell and the cistern and being forgotten and over, all that stuff, what's happened in here? You see, the fruit of dissent will be displayed in the breakthrough. And here's how you know dissent has done its good work when self takes its appropriate seat in the place of elevation. See, when, when, des- when the descending season hasn't been fully accomplished and done its good work in a person, when breakthrough comes, what happens to self is it ends up getting an inflated view of self. This is where leaders get domineering, controlling all about them, turning the spotlight on them. EGO gets off out of, out of control. What is all of that? It's that they went from glimpse to breakthrough, perhaps too quickly, accelerated the march of destiny, took things into their own hand, birthed it in their own strength, and then boom, they got all this responsibility and authority, and they see the opportunity to step into the spotlight, and they just step right on into it. And then they just start taking away some of that glory that God wants. And how you know the fruit of descent is in place is when you look at Joseph. And by the way, if you want a commentary, on a lot of the young leaders in the Bible, I just gave you the commentary. On a lot of them. All you got to do is look at. You want to know what happened to King Saul? Glimpse of breakthrough. Solomon, Uzziah, Rehoboam. How Hophni and Phinehas? Eli's son. You study any of these young leaders. What happened to this crew? They got they got thrust into this place of breakthrough, they they were living on the coattails of some things before them, got put in positions of elevated leadership, didn't have the interior world to uphold the weight of it. When the spotlight's there, they step into the middle, became all about themselves, became all about ego and pride, and became about stealing all the glory away from God, and then that's where you see it, and then everything implodes. And that's not what we see of Joseph here. What's different of Joseph is, I think, the interior work has been done. It's continued to go on, but there's certainly some strengthening of beams. Look out now, listen to what Larry Crabb, I put this quote in your notes. Listen to what he said about this. Selfishness at its root is self-protectiveness. Our primary commitment is to make certain no one can hurt us. The best way to do that is to never be fully vulnerable. That's the first commandment of fallen thinking. Trust no one and you shall live. The second is like it. To make your life worse, work, trust only yourself and what you can control. That's the stuff in Joseph's 20s that got chiseled out of his heart. No doubt he struggled with it, just like we all struggle with those things. At some point, gang, that kind of stuff's got to get worked out of us. And how does it get worked out of us is in God's wisdom, he knows exactly what's needed, when it's needed. And for Joseph's journey, this is what's been needed, to get the beams of the interior world to reflect what? Dependence on God, selflessness, servanthood, others oriented. That's the kind of stuff that God wants displayed when a leadership and authority is entrusted to him. So he's like, I got to take him through 13 years of this so we can get to this. So when he's standing before Pharaoh and he's got an opportunity, he puts the spotlight squarely where God's always wanted it. Because seasons of breakthrough tend to not to breathe those in. Tends to be places of wilderness, aloneness, darkness, cisterns. Those are the stuff that builds that into us. So Joseph's given opportunity now. He's got all the attention of all the officials. And he basically says to him, hey, God's going to handle all this. And here's the deal. Pharaoh, your dreams, really two dreams are one and the same. You're going to have seven years of great harvest. The crops are going to be abundant and flourishing. And then you're going to have seven years where it's going to be famine wherever he's gonna be starving for food. So Joseph says, wisdom is take the seven years of the crops flourishing, come up with a plan to stockpile that grain and come up with a system of distributing that grain so during the seven years of famine, your people, the people of Egypt can survive. That's That's basically the net of what he says to him. And now verse 37 and following is Pharaoh's response. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials, So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Wouldn't that be a great commentary to have on our lives? I hope of the many things that are said of my life, I hope one of them would be, it's obvious that the Spirit of God lives in him. You know, that's a distinguishing mark of followers of Jesus on this earth than people who aren't following Jesus. Like, the Spirit of God lives in you. Do you know that should that should be obvious after if you spent time with them? Doesn't mean you have to walk around and say, by the way, Holy Spirit lives in with me. Ha, ha ha. No. It just should be what? It should be they hung out around Joseph, they watched his life, they observed how he handled things, and they concluded the Spirit of God lives in him. I think that's a great bar to set in our followership that we would follow in such a way, that we would endure glimpse, descent, and breakthrough in such a way that those around, by the way, these are not God-fearing people. Pharaoh and his court officials are not bowing down worshiping Yahweh. They got all kinds of other spiritual things going on, but it isn't this. And they notice something that the world around us would say, hey, the spirit of God lives in her, in him, in them. And they conclude what? Then Pharaoh says to Joseph, since God, notice what Pharaoh says, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Picture the faces of the officials around him. You've been in some staff meetings where the leader of the staff meeting, right? Director of whatever department you're in. Organizational changes, and you're sitting around the staff table, and you look across the staff table, right? One person's being elevated over everyone else. How's everyone's facial reaction here? How about this scene? A young Hebrew servant who was just taking care of Potiphar's garden, who was just left in, right? Hey, he just got shaved after being shaved up, cleaned up. He still smells a little bit like the dungeon. What are you doing with him? He's going to be vice president of Egypt. All my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Wow. There's breakthrough. I don't think Joseph saw that turn coming. God saw it. You see, of all the things, all the people had forgotten about Joseph, right? Family certainly forgot about him. Dad thinks he's dead. Brothers think they got rid of him. Brother's forgotten about him. Dad's forgotten about him. Mr. Potiphar has certainly forgotten about him. Mrs. Potiphar long since forgotten about him. Chief Cupbearer clearly has forgotten about him for two years. All these people have forgotten about Joseph, but who hasn't forgotten? God has not forgotten about Joseph. And when God says it's time, Pharaoh has a dream. And the kind of dream no one else can interpret. Now, if I'm Joseph, I'm sure there's a little, I'm just reading in between the lines of the text, I'm sure there's a little prayer time between Joseph and God somewhere in here like, Lord, really, did it have to be like two full years in the dungeon? Like, could he have a dream like three, four months in? Anybody else felt like that? Really? Just a dream? And then all the chips fall? That's all we needed? Lord, a dream? Accelerating the march of destiny. God's the two years sitting down there in the darkness and the aloneness, In dealing with all of that. So first observation is trust God in the waiting, no matter how long or confusing. Second is when breakthrough comes, don't let self take an elevated seat. And the third observation here is let God set right all the stuff that was wrong. Because when Joseph steps in now to this position of elevated leadership, picture inside of him, just in his humanness, picture inside of him what would have been a temptation. Vice president of Egypt. Immediately he could think, I could do something about Mrs. Potiphar now, right? Or how about Mr. Potiphar? He could certainly do something about that. He could send him off to who knows where, middle of wherever battle line. Or how about his brother? I could do something about my brothers because he knows eventually during that famine, guess who's gonna be coming begging, which we'll get to in the weeks ahead, right? Brothers, I can do something about my brothers. All these people he could say, you know what? I'm gonna get back. Revenge. Because he's in a position of power and authority. But the interior world is set up in such a way where we don't see that. We see Joseph, instead of going the ways of this world, say, hey, when you get power and authority to do something about that, go and pay back those who did all those wrongs against you. Revenge time. Here's what Romans 12 says. Apostle Paul wrote it this way. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. There was a man named Dave Hagler who was like, his role was umpire in a recreational baseball league. He was driving on the roads one day, several months before baseball season, and a police officer pulls him over, does a classic, hey, you're going 45 and a 35. Dave Hagler does what we all do, is give the police officer a three-point outline on why he shouldn't write us a ticket, <laughs> because we're a really good driver most of the time. We obey the laws most of the time. Uh, we tell him what this is gonna do to our insurance rates. Please, could you just make it a warning? And the officer goes back to his car and does what most officers do is get a nice white ticket out and finish writing the ticket out and hand it. And as the officer handed it to Dave Hagler, he says, Dave, if you're upset about the ticket, then just go to court and deal with it there. Away he goes. Baseball season rolls around. Dave Hagler is behind the home plate as the umpire because he's been doing this for years. And he looks over to the guy who's got the bat stepping into the batter's box. Guess who it is? The officer who just a few months earlier wrote him that ticket. And the officer, because you know there's kind of the umpire mask, right? You gotta get a little bit closer. And he gets close enough and he looks in the eyes and he immediately recognizes each other. And there's that awkward, I know you, you know me type thing going on. And the officer's the one who breaks the ice and he says, hey, Dave how did that ticket deal work out in court? The umpire just kind of gets in his seated position, kind of just crouched back down there, looks up at him and says, if I were you, I'd swing at everything. (laughs) If only life's wrongs were as deep as a speeding ticket. And isn't it wonderful when the circumstances of our life are kind of orchestrated in such a way that you're at a recreational baseball league and the guy who wrote you the tickets comes into the batter's box and you're the umpire? Those are wonderful moments of redemption. And we love it when we get that front row seat. They're just quite rare. And here's the point God says, you know what? It's He who's going to be ultimately the guy who's at the umpire behind the plate, and every single one of us is gonna step into that batter's box, and you know what? He says, you know what? Leave all the revenge stuff to me. I'm much better at it anyway, because I'll screw up the judgment on it. I'll be like the guy behind the plate, swing at everything, because no matter, that ball's, it's a strike over here. But God says, leave that to me. It's mine to avenge. What's that mean? That's, the, the lang- that's Bible language for I'll get the last word, the Lord says. And with the last word, I'm gonna set all that's wrong in this dark and sorry world right. I'll get the last word. And inside of us, we're gonna need a tremendous, oh, come on now, a tremendous amount of patience To wait on the Lord for what? For him to get the last word, because believe you me, we're gonna wanna accelerate the march of destiny when we're thrust in the middle of injustice and we've got an opportunity to set some wrongs right and to put it in someone's face and to rub someone's nose in it. I'm sure we don't struggle with that in our world today. But here's Joseph, who's placed vice president of Egypt and all that's set before him and somewhere inside of here, he's like, you know what? I'm going I'm going the way of Jesus. I'm going Romans 12. I'm not gonna do revenge. I'm not gonna go glimpse, descent, breakthrough, revenge. That's kind of a commentary on the world's ways. Glimpse, descent, breakthrough, revenge. Pay back everyone who did me wrong. No, I'm gonna leave that in the Lord's hands. He's better at it anyway, and he's gonna get the last word, and with the last word, he's gonna set it right. And the act of faith for us as the people of Jesus is Most of that gang is gonna be in the life to come. Most of us are not gonna get a front row seat to the umpire batter's box type exchange. We're gonna be life to come. And you're gonna have some face-to-face meetings in the life to come. And everything that wasn't right here will be set right there. Joseph knew that. He's actually gonna get a front row seat to a few of those umpire batter's box moments for him. But he doesn't get all of them, but he gets a few of them. And I think our best model of this is Jesus himself. Listen to 1 Peter 2. This is what Peter's reflection is on it. When they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. How could Jesus do that? He was innocent. Remember, he's before Pilate, he's innocent. Jesus, one whisper and those guys will have to put those whips down. they have to put those spikes down. He's innocent. Free Barabbas, are you kidding me? The guilty murderer. And Jesus is. I'll leave it all. Remember Pilate says, hey, you gonna speak up? You got, I got power to do something about this. And Jesus looks at him and says, you got no power over me unless it's given, what, by the Father above. What's he turning to there? Father gets the last word, because Jesus knew what? Sunday's coming. How sure can you be that God is gonna set all the wrongs right? Hear this, this is how sure you can be. As empty as Jesus' tomb is, that's how sure you can be. As empty as that tomb is, that's the security and the grounds for which we know God's gonna get the last word. And with that last word, he'll set it all right. We win in Jesus. Look at the empty tomb. You look like you're all winning on Friday, silent Saturday. Sunday's coming. Jesus knew it. The Father knew it. He was enduring, so he could be silent. Let God be my defender. How's God gonna defend him? Huh, flash of lightning, stone rolls away, footprints coming out of the grave. I think somebody got the last word. Roman leaders are all, huh. They don't know what to do with themselves. They gotta concoct a story, stole the body, something, right? And they're still circulating that mess of a story and theory around today. You kidding me? You know how to shut the Jesus movement down today? All around the world, 190 nations, two billion people doing quite well today, flourishing all around the world. You know how to shut it all down? Just find the body. They're not gonna find the body because there is no body to find because Jesus lives. And in that, God got the last word right there. And he gives us a little preview. That's a preview of coming attractions for his people to say, hey, Look, you might live 70, 80, 90 years, Good Friday, Silent Saturday, a large portion of it, but know this, when you take your last breath here, huh, take your last breath here, it's Resurrection Sunday for all eternity, and he'll set it all right. And that's the kind of leadership he wants to see in Joseph, standing there in that position of authority, and that's what he does in front of Pharaoh and all those officials. Do you see how God gets so much glory in that? No revenge from this guy, why? I think, what's up with this guy? The spirit of God lives in him. I wonder if that could be said of you and me in handling whatever we're given to handle. Spirit of God lives in her, in him, in us. So this past week, as a family, we spent a great week on Potoka Lake down in southern Indiana. Anybody ever been to Potoka Lake? Clearly not many people have been because we couldn't find anyone there. There's like nobody at Potoka Lake. I was like Monday, we were swimming in the water, so I'm looking around, we couldn't find another person or a boat, and I go, does a whole bunch of people know something about this lake that I don't know? You ever had that thought? Like the water's got major issues, or there's like some freshwater shark-eating things inside of this, and we're just all swimming around, having a good time with our floaties, and everybody's looking at them going, they have no idea. I kind of had that thought, like where are all the people? It was so bad on Monday night all the restaurants, we pull out of the lake at like 7.30, we're all starving. Eight o'clock at night, we're thinking, oh, we'll just find, you know, someplace to eat quick. And everybody's closed, eight o'clock. 7 45, they said, A kind of rough, you know, closing time. I said, eight o'clock, what's open? Nothing, sir, it's Monday. Monday? Summer? Look how light it is out. How can you be closed? We went from one place to another, and all of them said, close Monday, close Monday. We went by this one gas station, and it said open. I turned to the whole crew, I said, Whatever's inside that gas station is what we're eating for supper. (laughs) So we went full on roller food on Monday night. Roller food through and through, we open up the doors and the gal behind the desk says, we got hot food and our crew went, yes! I'm like, "Only, only, only a starving group of folks who don't hang out around the lake much would say that. We wiped out all our hot food, she was so happy. And then we got back to the cabin and we realized we got no breakfast food for the next morning. <laughs> and all the kids sort of said, Pop-Tarts, Dad. Like, we don't get Pop-Tarts any other time of the year but on vacation. Can you go find Pop-Tarts? I thought to myself, it's 9.30 at night now. <laughs> so I go back to that same gas station thinking, maybe they're open past 9.30. Sure enough, a sign on the door. I pull up like 9.40 on the sign. It says, open till 9.30. She's in there like doing her cash register thing. I walk up, I got a $5 bill in my pocket. I did this, true. I walk up, I stick the $5 bill on the glass window. I go like this, and I gave her this innocent, like, begging look. She comes to the door, she says, may I help you? I said, I need (laughs) Pop-Tarts. She goes, what? I said I really need Pop Tarts. I got a house full of kids back here. They just want Pop Tarts for the morning. How about five dollars? How many Pop Tarts can I give for five dollars? <laughs> she goes back on their shelves, comes out with Pop Tarts, and just keep the change. I don't just whatever Pop Tarts you could give go back. That's how we started the week. We're at Potoka Lake. End of the week. There was this ice cream shack set up. And all week long it was closed. Of course you drive by a closed ice cream shack, you're thinking, I can't wait till that's open. Friday it opens. People come Friday. No one's there Monday through Thursday. Friday, all the people. Oh, there's people. Boats. Kayla's Cones opens up. End of the lake day, we go up to Kayla's Cones. There's an elderly woman running the ice cream store, and she serves us up all of our scoops, and we're standing there. It was amazing ice cream. And I said to her, I said, hey, how's business? And she's, oh, it's great, this time of year especially. And I'm like, well, you're like not open like ever. <laughs> she's like, oh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, okay. Um, and I said, hey, are you Kayla? And she just paused. And immediately I could see her whole disposition change. I thought, oh boy. And she couldn't hardly get her words out. She's, no, I'm not Kayla. Kayla's my daughter. We lost her when she was 23. And she started crying. Kids are all standing there. Picture the scene, right? Kids are all standing there like licking their ice creams like this, I'm trying to pay. And this woman behind it, she just literally just starts weeping. I said, what happened? She said, well, she's my only child. And we adopted her. And when she was seven years old, the foster family we adopted her from decided they wanted her back and so they came and abducted her and she said, for nine months and 27 days, I prayed every day. She was crying really hard. Nine months, 27 days. I said, Lord, where is she? It's our only child. God protected her and we got her back. So it was amazing. She says, I got to raise Kayla. She was a wonderful young girl. And then she's going to have her first child. She's 23. She's seven months pregnant. She goes to the doctor, and the doctor says at seven months pregnant, they discovered she has leukemia all through her body. Twenty-three years old, about to give birth. She gives birth. The child seems to be healthy and strong, and they named her Kaylee. A few months after Kaylee was born, Kayla dies. And she said, I started this ice cream store in Kayla's memory. I thought, I reached in my pocket. I thought, how much money do I have in my pocket here? I'm going to like pay whatever, like whatever the ice cream's worth, I'm going to pay double, whatever it is. You know, just, she says, and every dollar that's given to this tip jar is going to Kaylee's educational fund. We set up a little annuity thing at the bank, she said, and that's, what, and that's why I do it. She says, "I'm a 60-plus-year-old woman with some of my friends trying to raise now a nine-year-old girl." And all the kids are just they're just they're just looking up. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know what to do." To, I just reached my hand across the window and I just grabbed her hand. A line of people started forming, and I just said, "Hey, the Lord is well pleased with what you're doing." And tonight... When we tuck the kids into bed, we're praying for you. And we're praying for Kaylee. And as I drove away, I thought, man, there's someone in the big scheme of things, right? Or someone's got to get the last word and all that. Who's going to get the last word? God's going to get that last word. And with that last word, I just picture right when this grandmother crosses into glory, I think Jesus is the kind of savior that's gonna have who right beside him. I think Kayla's gonna be right there. It's gonna be Jesus and Kayla and then mom and then eventually granddaughter, right? And all that's wrong in this dark, sorry, broken place is set right there. The man gang, inside her face you can see it's a long, good Friday and a long, silent Saturday to get to Sunday. And some of you are right there. Where there's the chapel family, the Brebson family, so many other families living out. Kayla Cone type stories. I want you to hold on to Joseph and hold on to the story of God and his life. Glimpse, descent, breakthrough. In Jesus, we're all guaranteed breakthrough at some point. We rejoice when we get some waves of it and taste of it in this life. We plant our feet firmly and guaranteed in the life to come. How firm is that guarantee? How empty is that tomb? Let's pray. Lord, we just, uh, we unite our hearts as a congregation and pray, pray right now for Kayla's mom, for Kaylee's grandmother would you encourage her heart today as she's there scooping ice cream and wondering how to raise a nine-year-old and wondering why and how long. And she said there's not a day that goes by where she doesn't miss her daughter. And I think of some in this room who've lost children far too young she just breathe hope you breathe strength? Would you breathe peace? Would you lift our eyes up and help us to see the bigger story now even today and just be reminded that one day you'll get that final word in all those situations? Give us a measure of trust in the waiting. Continue to crucify self when there's any breakthroughs that come. May we lead and rule in righteousness and goodness and truth, handling it in a Christ-like way. And then God, may we trust you with uh, setting right all that's wrong. Not go revenge, but go Romans 12. You're better at it anyway, that we lay it down at your feet. Lord, may you find us as a people who worship in all seasons of life, secure in this, uh, the tomb is empty and destiny in Jesus is guaranteed. Breathe that into us today, I pray in Jesus' name.